Hebrews chapter 1. Now, we are moving at just an incredible pace through the book of Hebrews, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think today it'll be a month that we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and we will not get out of verse 2 today. We will not be leaving verse 2 today. We've covered in our previous lessons verse 1 and, and uh, the first part of verse 2, and we're going to cover the second part of verse 2 today. Let's just read through it, starting in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. We've covered that ground. Here's the ground that we'll cover today. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Let's pray. Lord, we just believe today that you're going to speak to us in your word. We believe together that your word is living that it's active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and that when it's in the hand of your Holy Spirit, it's like a surgeon's scalpel. It's able to do surgery on our hearts and on our lives. And Lord, we just want to confess before you that we are a messed up people, redeemed and happily so, but messed up nonetheless. Works in progress at best, Lord. And so we're asking that you continue that work today. Speak to us about what it means, not only that Jesus is the heir of all things, but that we are co-heirs with him. What a glorious truth that is. Holy Spirit, breathe life into our spirits concerning these things. We believe your word to be inerrant today, without flaw, without error in the original manuscripts. And so we rejoice that as the word goes forth today, it is absolute truth. We seek not to mingle it with the wisdom of man, but to have the unadulterated, uncontaminated, pure word of God. And Lord, we don't want to drink milk necessarily, but we want you to take us into the meat of these things. And so Holy Spirit, we need your help. I confess before my brothers and sisters whom I love, my inadequacy, my lack of ability, and my utter unworthiness to preach your word. But there is a blood of Jesus Christ by which I've been saved and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we together ask for a fresh empowering to come upon me to communicate your truths to the building up of these loved ones, Lord. Do these things now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Jesus as the heir of all things. Now, last week we talked about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And I revealed to you that there's been many people throughout history and antiquity that were called the Son of God. But we talked about why Jesus is the unique Son of God, and as such is God, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, as we spoke of the concept of the Trinity. Three distinct persons making up the one God. We talked about that. I don't know if we understood much, but it's a trinity, so we're all right. Now, because Jesus is the Son, He is also the heir. A logical conclusion there. Because He is the Son, He is also the heir. But what does it mean that Jesus is the heir of all things? We're going to have to unpack that a little bit, just as we had to unpack the concept that He is the Son of God. What did that mean? Why was that unique? Why did that point to His supremacy? Why does, in wanting to highlight the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews say here that He is the heir of all things? 
Because really, it doesn't quite make sense to us, or at least to me, because we believe Jesus to be God, along with the Father and the Son. And we believe that Jesus is the Lord of all things. Amen? But if he is the Lord of all things, how can he inherit anything? You see the difficulty. If he is the Lord of all things, how could he inherit anything? What can God inherit? And who would God's predecessor be? From whom would God inherit something? And so we have a difficulty in this phrase, Jesus, the heir of all things. Let's try to make sense of it by examining a couple things. Firstly, we'll examine how we understand the concept of heir in our world today. And then secondly, we will examine how they, the recipients of the book of Hebrews, understood the concept of heir in the first century Roman world which was the context in which they were living. And once we understand those two things, we will then be able to make sense of a third thing. And that is the fact that we Christians are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Once we make sense of what it means that Jesus is the heir of all things, we'll begin to understand what it means that we are co-heirs. So how do we in our culture today understand the concept of an heir? Well, I looked it up in the Oxford American Dictionary because I wasn't quite sure, and it read this. An heir is a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another upon that person's death. I think that's generally what we would believe as an heir. That's how we would define it. And so in our minds, heirship involves really no more than the idea of the acquisition of property, property or title by succession. And that's about the extent of it. In our minds, really, it just means that when somebody else dies, we're going to get some stuff or some sort of title. Now, here is where the difficulty lies with our modern concept. If Jesus is the Son of God, and so subsequently the heir of the Father, and an heir is the one who attains something at the death of the predecessor, it begs the question, when did the Father die? The answer is never. God the Father never died. Do not fall into the error of saying that the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father, and so it was also the Father who died upon the cross. That is a misunderstanding of the Trinity and a historical, heretical error that we reject. If Jesus is the Son of God and so subsequently the heir of the Father, and an heir is one who attains to something at the death of the predecessor, when did the Father die? The Father never died. The Father is eternal and has never taken on human flesh. Only the Son has taken on human flesh. And so the Father has never died and never will. Much to the consternation of Nietzsche. That bonehead that said God is dead. I love when Christians wear that shirt, Nietzsche is dead. Because he is for real dead. But not God. 
And so as Merrill Unger says in his Bible dictionary, the idea of succession is manifestly inapplicable with reference to the eternal God. He can't be succeeded, he can't be successor, because he is an eternal God. It doesn't make sense. So if our modern understanding of the concept of heir, being a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death, does not make sense with the eternal nature of God, how are we to understand Christ as heir of all things? What does it mean in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2? Well, we need to look at how they, the recipients of the letter, understood the concept heir. Keep in mind, as we dive into this, the intent of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. You've always, when studying the Bible, always have to keep the context in mind. Context, context, context. Context plus content equals meaning. The content is the words, Jesus is the heir of all things. The context will help us to determine the meaning. Remember the context, the intent of the author. It's that the author is asserting the eternality and deity of Christ and presenting him as supreme, right? That's what's happening in Hebrews chapter 1. He is presenting Jesus in all of his deity and his glory and his supremacy, And in addition to saying in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Son of God and the heir of all things, we learn in chapter 1, as we've spoken of previously, that Jesus is the sustainer of the universe and the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature, the high priest of perfection, and that he's seated at the right hand of majesty on high. We learn that he has a more excellent name. He's the one whom the angels worship. He's the exalted king, the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal, the unchanging, and the ultimate conqueror. Now, that is the presentation of the person of Jesus Christ in the first chapter of Hebrews. So then, in thinking about what it means that Jesus is the heir of all things, there must be some concept in Christ being heir that is consonant with these other qualities and positions and so sets Jesus apart as supreme. If we're going to look at it in context, there must be something about the fact that Jesus is heir that points to his supremacy and his unity with the Father and his absolute deity. There's something we are missing in our modern understanding. We need an understanding of the concepts of heir and inheritance that was prevalent in the context of the first century world, and that is the Roman world now. There's a book entitled Ancient Law by Sir Henry Maine, and it sheds some light on the situation. Here's a quote from page 181. He writes, The notion among the Romans was that though the physical person of the deceased had perished, his legal personality had survived and descended unimpaired to his heirs and co-heirs, in whom his identity as far as the law was concerned, was continued. Now remember, the point in the first few verses of Hebrews is to show that Jesus communicates to us all we know and need to know about God. And and what the author is wanting to get at is that these Hebrew Christians who have encountered very, very difficult times under the persecution of Nero Nero, have not made a mistake by following the person of Jesus. 
That in following Christ, they have not left the God of Israel. They have not abandoned the God of Israel, but rather by following Christ, they've come into a fuller understanding of the God of Israel and into a more complete relationship with him. As it says in verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. As it says in the first part of verse 3, and Jesus is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So remember, he's pressing upon them the fact that Jesus is the way. Now notice from the previous quote, speaking of the testator, it said, his personality had survived unimpaired in his heir or heirs in whom his identity was continued. The same book continues on another page, quote, the testator lived on in his heir or in the group of his co-heirs. He was in law the same person with them. Meaning, the heir exercised all the legal rights and all the privileges and all the responsibilities of the testator and the predecessor. The heir exercised the legal rights, privileges, and responsibilities of the one who came before him. Now, that is exactly what we saw last week concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that which distinguished him and set him apart as the Son of God from everyone else. Isn't that what we saw? Is that Jesus is set apart as the Son of God because he exercised divine prerogatives, Abilities and responsibilities and privileges reserved for the one deity alone, such as the ability to confer life and eternal life, such as the authority to judge and to forgive sins. So we see that Jesus is set apart in his very identity and that he has the legal rights, privileges, and responsibilities of the entire Godhead. Now the picture gets even richer. Continue to follow me, please. In English law, in our law, there's a well-known concept which says this. No one is heir of the living. Meaning, the benefits of being an heir are not expected to be realized fully until the predecessor is dead. That's our understanding of heir in the law concerning such. No one is heir of the living. The benefits of being an heir are not expected to be realized until the predecessor is dead. But that was not the Roman first century understanding of an heir. According to Roman law, the moment a child was born, he was his father's heir. The moment the child was born, he was his father's heir in fullness So that during the life of the father, the son exercised co-ownership of everything the father had. During the life of the father. And from the moment of birth of the child, that child exercised co-ownership with regards to everything that the father had. So much so that an expert in Roman law from the third century, Paul the jurist, jurist is one who's an expert in the law, said of children as heirs, quote, when therefore the father dies, it is not so correct to say that they succeed to his property as that they acquire the free control of their own. 
When therefore the father dies, it is not so correct to say that they succeed to his property as that they acquire the free control of their own. Merrill Unger comments and says, the heir in this context has not to wait for the moment of his father's decease. In and through his father, he is already participator, note the word, he is already participator, please remember that word, he is already participator in the family possessions. The father does not die, but lives on forever in his family. Physically absent, he is spiritually present not with so much as in his children. Do you see the analogy begin to press upon us? Though physically absent, he is spiritually present, not with so much as in his children. Now let's break that down just a little bit. The first part said, in and through his father, the heir is already participator. I want you to remember that word. He is already participator in the family possessions. That would pertain to not only possessions, but also the family business, amen? Now, did not our Lord say at the age of 12, when he stayed behind in the temple and his parents came back to find him, didn't he say, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? He was the heir of all things. He knew from the earliest age that he had to be involved in the father's business. Jesus said later on in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Co-ownership, co-responsibility, co-labor. Jesus says later on in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in a like manner. So we see there the concept of heir as played out in the Godhead. That the heir is to be participator in the business of the father. And when Jesus comes, we see it most expressly in the gospel of John. He does the work of the father. In fact, the will of the father is made manifest through the work of the Son. The Father's heart is made obvious to the world through what the Son did. Amen? Now, the next part of that quote from Mayor Unger said this, and we see this analogy pressing upon us. Physically absent, he is spiritually present, not with so much as in his children. Now, Jesus said in John 14, Verses 9 through 11. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Do you see this concept of the air being played out in the Trinity? Now, from the first century Roman understanding, then we glean these things. One's legal personality survives unimpaired in one's heir or group of co-heirs. Next, his identity, so far as the law was concerned, continued. 
Next, the necessity of the death of the predecessor for the prerogatives of the heir to be exercised is removed. Important. Did you notice that? In Roman law, it was not necessary for the testator or the predecessor to die for the prerogatives of the heir to be exercised. That whole concept of one needing to die, our modern concept, is removed in the biblical concept of heir. And most potently, the father is present in the heir and co-heirs. Now it should be obvious to us what it means that Jesus is the heir of all things. The book of Hebrews here in verse 2 is appealing to common Roman understanding of the concept of an heir to point to Jesus as being one with the Father in all things pertaining to the Father's estate and kingdom and domain, which include, of course, all things. Now, why was that important for these Hebrew Christians that received this letter in the first century? Why was that important? Because they were subject to the authority of another kingdom, namely the Romans. And their very lives were being threatened by the authority of another kingdom, namely the Romans. And they had rejected the modern phraseology, Caesar is Lord and had attached themselves to the mantra, to the creed, Jesus is Lord. And so they had to come into a full understanding that it was Jesus' kingdom that they had sworn allegiance to. And that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that their citizenship is not of this world. And so they could not really be threatened by the king of this world, lowercase k. Because they were subject to the heir of all things, King Jesus, uppercase k. The author of Hebrews is encouraging these Christians that they are participating in that kingdom because they have chosen to follow the one who is the heir of that kingdom, the one who is authorized to exercise all authority, all sovereignty, and all dominion. And that they have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And they are now connected to the king, uppercase K. And so though their lives be threatened, though the political situation was frightening, they don't have to fret, they don't have to fear, they don't have to wander, they don't have to worry. They don't have to look for anything more. Because remember, we learn later on in the book of Hebrews that some of them were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Hebrews 10.24 says, Therefore, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the coming of the king, uppercase K. The author of Hebrews is saying, Don't bail out now. The king is coming. Don't give in now. You're members of the kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. And the kingdom, though it is coming, the kingdom is also now. The kingdom of God is both present and future. Future and present. 
And though the fullness of the reality thereof is expected, the reality thereof is experienced in the here and now. And he wants to encourage them because some of them were bailing out on the faith saying, don't leave the faith because times have gotten difficult. You have everything that you need in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't think that you've somehow left the God of Israel and you've come to a lesser power and that if you go back to the God of Israel, then everything will be okay because Jesus is the heir of all things appointed by God. You understand that? In the air, they have the fullness of deity, as Colossians 2.9 says about Jesus. Now, that's what it means that Jesus is the heir of all things. But how does that relate to you and I? What does the Bible mean when it says that we are co-heirs with Christ? Keeping all of those previous definitions and precepts in mind, turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we have a parallel concept of us being co-heirs spoken of in Romans chapter 8, you know that, Romans eight fifteen through 17, but we're going to look at it here in Galatians 4, just verses 6 and 7, very simply, we'll just get the concept. Speaking of us now, those who have become Christians, and because you are sons God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right? We're sons of God. Jesus is the son of God. And we are heirs. Jesus is the heir. I want us to see the wording in Romans 8 because it's a little more potent in my mind right now. Romans chapter 8. Same concept, some different words. Romans chapter 8, let's start in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That phraseology of intimacy with the God of the universe. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we indeed are children of God. Amen? Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If indeed, it says, that phrase in the Greek means if as is the fact. As a Christian, you are going to suffer with the person of Jesus Christ. That's just a fact of Christianity. It doesn't mean if you suffer, then you will attain to something. 
It's saying as if the fact. But what I want to impress upon us is that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Now remember from the previous definitions that the need for the death of the predecessor for the legal rights of the heirs to be exercised has been removed. So that means that in the here and now, you and I, co-heirs with Christ, are to represent the business of God. We're to represent the person of God. We're to represent the plan of God. We're to represent the will of God. We are to represent the identity of God. And we're to represent the presence of God. Not so much with us, but in us is the understanding of an heir. We are to represent the business, the person, the plan, the will, the identity, and the presence of the Father. The precepts of the kingdom. The priorities of the king in the here and now. It is his kingdom come. There will be a fullness experience when Christ comes. But the kingdom is not only future, it is present. Too many Christians get caught up living in the future. So heavenly minded, they have no earthly good anymore. We're to be very concerned with the reality of the kingdom in the here and now because as co-heirs, we are representatives, doesn't express it enough. We are exercisors of the will of God on earth. Stewards of God's grace. You're not getting it. Turn to 2 Corinthians. No, you're not. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. Let's start in verse fourteen. Verse fourteen for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Talking about our identification with the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his subsequent resurrection. Verse 15. And he died for all. That they who live, please note this, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, if the conviction of the Spirit of God doesn't fall upon you when we read that, then you're just not here. That they who live, I'm talking about myself now, conviction, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. Let's be honest, people. We primarily live for ourselves. We primarily are concerned about thy, my, me, my kingdom come, my will be done. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now, what is made new 
in the Christian life? What are the old things that passed away? The old self that was controlled by the devil and the power of sin has passed away. And the power structure of sin has been broken. And in that breaking of the power structure of sin by the cross of Jesus Christ, the self-life is to be obliterated. The self is to be crucified with Christ. Nailed to the cross. And then you see the, the trick of the Christian life is you got to leave that old man up on a cross. But so often we like to pull him down. See, we can't resuscitate him. It won't be a resurrection because we've been resurrected to new life. But we like to pull down the old man. See, we can't resuscitate him. We get caught up in the flesh once again. But the old things have passed away. Let them be done. Let them be in the past. Let them be dead. Don't be tantalized. Don't be tempted by. Don't flirt with those things anymore. All things have become brand new. The power structure of sin is broken in our lives. We are free from sin. And we now can become slaves of righteousness. Our allegiance is not to this world, but to the king with a capital K. All things have become new, including our understanding of how we live, the way we prioritize our lives. We are no longer the captain of our own ships. We are no longer the controllers of our own destiny. As Paul said, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith unto him. But that requires a once and for all sacrifice and then a subsequent daily sacrifice. Living in light of the reality of the kingdom of God as co-heirs. Look in verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, look now, and gave us, did you know that God has given you something? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus came to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. And subsequent to his ascension unto heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church, the gifts and the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to you and I. So if a fallen world is going to be reconciled to a holy God, that responsibility, the privilege thereof, the endeavor thereof, the work thereof, lies in our hands. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to be sure. Led by the Holy Spirit, Absolutely. But as co-heirs, we are to exercise the prerogatives of the kingdom, the ministry of reconciliation. What's the ministry of reconciliation? Verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, look at this, I'm going to put something on you. Not I, but the word of God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were begging through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice what it says in verse 24. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Do you realize that? 
You are an ambassador for the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting about an ambassador. An ambassador is always chosen. An ambassador is appointed. Nobody becomes ambassador by default. But an ambassador is chosen by one of a greater rank than himself. The President of the United States will appoint ambassadors to other nations. And those ambassadors are to represent the laws of the United States, the work of the United States, the will of the United States, the wishes of the United States, the plans of the United States. Now, we have been selected by King Jesus. You don't understand. We've been selected by King Jesus. Did you ever notice that in the Bible when somebody saw an angel, they tripped out? In the Bible, when somebody saw an angel, they were terrified because of how great these beings are. They fell down like dead men when they saw an angel. And yet we have been selected by Jesus to represent his beautiful heart. To represent his perfect heart. He has not entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to angels. He is not instructed to do a select few. He, he, he's, he's not entrusted, excuse me, to pastors. He's entrusted it to every single Christian. You are the representative within your sphere of influence of the heart of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now a problem emerges then if you don't know his heart. If you're not in his word, how can you know his heart? If you're not connecting with his heart, how can you represent his heart? How can an ambassador be of any good if he doesn't know the will of the one by whom he has been sent? As co-heirs, the biggest responsibility that we have is to know him. As co-heirs, the biggest responsibility that we have is to know the person of Jesus Christ. And when we know the person of Jesus Christ, it is no drudgery to represent him. It is not something that has to be strategized or thought through. It doesn't have to be contrived. When we know him, the overflow of our lives is a representation of him. Turn to Matthew 28 if you would. Matthew chapter 28. 28 is post the resurrection of Jesus Christ pre the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And we pick it up in verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, them, designated excuse me, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. Verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now wait one second right there. 
Jesus, after his resurrection, meets the disciples on some mountain there in the region of the Galilee, no doubt around the Sea of Galilee. He's got a predetermined meeting with them. And at that meeting, they see the resurrected Christ, they see him in glory, and they worship him. Some are doubtful. That's people. But then Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that word authority in the Greek is exousia. Exousia. It combines the idea of right and might. Those two ideas coming together. Jesus here is saying, all the right in heaven and on earth is mine. Why? Because he's the heir of all things. And the heir exercises the authority of the one whom he represents. He says, all authority, all right has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And all might, he says, belongs to me. Exousia, right and might. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I'm sure that he said that in response to the doubt and the worship of some of those disciples. Now, I imagine that at this juncture, this was a wonderful relief to the ears of those disciples because they had thought that all authority had been given unto him because Jesus said that it had been back in Matthew 11, verse 27. All authority has been handed to me by the Father. They thought that was the case. They thought that he had all right and all might. But then this whole cross thing happened. When they saw him arrested, they saw him spit upon, they saw him mocked, they saw him beaten, they saw him scorched, they saw him nailed to the cross. And they doubted, didn't they? I mean, they abandoned him in the garden, they abandoned him at the cross, and one even denied him three times. And some were heading out of town on the road to Emmaus. They'd given up the hope in the one who had previously said, all authority is mine. And now after he rose from the dead, he appears to them once again at the Sea of Galilee and he says, all exousia has been given unto me. All authority, all right and all might in heaven and on earth. I am the heir of all things. And I imagine at that moment the disciples said, okay, okay, here we go. This is great news, Jesus, because that's what we thought. But that cross gig, it scared us a little bit. But now we see that you're risen from the dead. Now we see that you're in glory and you have all the authority. This is perfect. You have all the authority, all the right and all the might. And so Jesus, what are you going to do? I mean, what are you going to do? Can you please open up a can on the Romans? Can you just let the Romans know once and for all to get up off of Israel? Can you tell them to leave us alone? Is this when you're going to establish the kingdom for us? Can you please deal with the Pharisees? You have all the right. You have all the might. All the authority is yours. Jesus, what are you going to do? And their hearts and their eyes are focused on him as the heir of all things. And in the next breath, in verse 19, Jesus says, You go, therefore, and make disciples. He immediately engaged them as co-heirs. This is historically called in the church the Great Commission. The Great Commission. What does it mean to be commissioned? It means to be given authority to act on behalf of another. 
Jesus proclaimed, I have been given all authority. And when he told them to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he was authorizing them as representatives. He says, all authority has been given to me. I now entrust it to you. Nobody understands. We've been given authority by the person of Jesus Christ to represent him in this world. Are you appropriating your authority as co-heirs of the kingdom of God right now in your daily life? I know we need to live. I know we need to make ends meet. I know we need to surf. We do. I know we need to do these other things. Representing Jesus Christ well does not preclude any of those things. It is to be done in the context of those things. Where are you at right now and what you're doing now? Are you, all I'm saying people is this. Are we recognizing, I'll make it a we because I'm preaching to the preacher. Are we recognizing our co-heirship with Christ Jesus? That we are to be representing the person, plan, will, and presence of God in this world. Nobody else is going to do it. It's been given unto us. And the last thing I'll say about this is that there is a very clear sense of oneness between the heir and the testator. I want you to go to John 17 and we'll end right there. Gospel of John chapter 17. I want you to try to by the Holy Spirit lay hold of this oneness that Jesus speaks of here. There is in the concept of being an heir a very clear sense of oneness in first century context with the testator. We see this very clear in Jesus when he said, and we looked at it last week in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, we as co-heirs, to a degree, are one with the Father as well. Not in the same sense as a unique son is, of course, because we do not exercise all the divine prerogatives. We cannot confer life, both initial and eternal, for example. But there is more than I think we realize a oneness given to us as co-heirs. John 17, verse 11 It's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus here on the night before the cross says, and I am no more in the world. He's praying to the Father. Now, by the way, the question came up last week. If Jesus and the Father are one, why did he pray to the Father? He's praying to himself. No, 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 no. That's a misunderstanding of the Trinity, isn't it? Remember, the definition of the Trinity is three distinct persons making up one God. He's not praying to himself. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. The Father is a Father, and the Son is a Son. And they are united by relationship and by deity. So he's praying to the Father. He's praying to the Father. He says, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves, speaking of us, the disciples, are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While, did you notice that? That they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world. We wish he had, huh? I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Do you see the strong identity the believer has with the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus prays in verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 18, look very closely. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Remember, Jesus is sent into the world as a perfect representation of God. And the works that Jesus did represent the will of the Father for all of eternity. And in the same way that the Son was sent, Jesus says in the same way, in that same representative, unified quality, I am now sending them, my disciples, to the church. Verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, and they, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their words. Subsequent believers. Okay, that comes down to us. Future converts. Verse 21, look that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Remember, the presence of the Father is not so much with as in the air. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Did you notice that? That the, the belief of the world to a certain degree is dependent upon our identifying ourselves in unity with the person of Jesus Christ and one another as co-heirs? It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But it's the job of the church to represent the person, the power, and the presence of Christ Jesus. Verse 22. And the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. In the person of Christ Jesus, we have been adopted, which means that we are accepted by the Father. I don't care who else has rejected you in this world. You have been accepted by the God of the universe. Forget about it. Who else has rejected you in this world? Forget about it. Be healed and be set free in Jesus' name. We are adopted, meaning that we are accepted meaning that we are sons, meaning that we are co-heirs, meaning that we represent the Father and all His glory and His ministry and His love and His mercy in this world. Man, it's a good gig. 
One, uh, one uh, guy commentating says, in this phrase, the heirs of God, there is presented a most vivid view of the intimate and eternal union between the believer and God and the faithful soul's possession in present reality and not merely an anticipation of the kingdom on earth and in heaven. Possession in present reality. Remember that I told you to remember the word participator? We are participators in God's possessions, in God's business, in God's domain, in God's kingdom. And so there is to be possession in present reality, and then there is the wonderful anticipation of the kingdom coming on earth in fullness. That is, we groan for the day of the coming of Jesus Christ. But though we groan for that day, We do not become paralyzed today. We get active in the things of God. Present participators in the present reality of the glory and the kingdom of the Father forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths. They're clearly too much for us, Lord. We don't really get it. It's too much for us, Lord. But we ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and beautifully minister these truths to our hearts. That by the work of you, Holy Spirit, there'd come a real change in our lives. Lord, I'm going to pray for myself that there'd come a real change in my life. That I'd be less about me and more about the King. That I would, that we would together become very concerned with the glory of the King with the name of the king, with the work of the king, with the will of the king, with the presence of the king, within our sphere of influences and less about us and our things. Lord, help us. We confess that we are weak and we are selfish in so many ways. Church, I want you to stand. And if you identify with these things, let's lift our hands in prayer. Father, we confess before you that we are weak and we are overcome with selfishness in our daily lives. There are definitely glimpses of your glory in those moments where our will is wholly consumed by yours. But Lord, we want more. John the Baptist was a great man, but he said, I've got to decrease that Jesus might increase. And so we're praying a prayer of declension. We're praying a prayer of decrease. We want to get smaller that you might get bigger in our lives, Lord. And so help us, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and fall upon us. We want you to come. Father, we ask for the promise of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Come and minister the new life, the resurrected life, the kingdom life of Jesus to us. Jesus, we invite you to come and be on the throne. Lord, we just want to confess for those little areas of our lives where we have enthroned ourselves, where we've taken control, where we've said, my will be done. Forgive us, Lord. We want to very carefully, very consciously fullness of faith surrender those areas and say Jesus come be the center come be enthroned 
Come rule and reign once again. Let's draw near to Jesus, church. Let's draw near.